Hello once again to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's great to be back on the air, and we are now uh, on to um, another uh, segment of the book Through the Perilous Fight, From the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, The Six Weeks That Saved the Nation, by Steve Vogel. Well, uh, tonight's segment is going to talk about Francis Scott Key. I know I briefly mentioned about him um, yesterday, but in order to really know who Francis Scott Key is, I feel it's essential to um, talk about as much of his uh, background as possible. Of course, he will be talked about in other podcast sessions um, as well, but tonight's podcast is going to be focused primarily on Francis Scott Key and his immediate family. So anyways, um, Mr. Francis Scott Key was born in 1779, and what war is going on that the United States is involved in? It's that infamous American Revolution against England so basically, Francis Scott Key is a child of the American Revolution. He hailed from the rolling hills of Central, Mar- of Central Maryland. <laughs> he was born at a, at a home that his parents named uh, Terra Rubra, being a family farm. And what I found interesting when having read this book not too terribly long ago is that Terra Rubra was named for the red soil of surrounding land, and this um, property had been in the family's hands for multiple generations. Well, Francis Scott Key is the son of John Ross Key and Anne Phoebe Charlton Key. Francis's father fought in the American Revolution, most notably in the battle campaigns in New England and Yorktown. Or shut, and why is Yorktown important? Because that's where the British surrendered in 1781. Now, here's um, some good family uh, history uh, involving the Key family. Who is Philip Key? That is Francis Scott Key's great-grandfather. It turns out that Philip Key is a descendant of John Key, who was the poet laureate to King Edward IV in the 15th century. Philip Key arrives to Colonial America in 1726, and he comes from England, that is. By the 1750s, he has acquired 2,800 acres of land in the foothills of Maryland's Blue Ridge, and it turns out that this land itself was only 10 miles from the Mason-Dixon line, and not too terribly far from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Well, is it safe to say that Francis Scott Key's family um, is one that's uh, well-to-do? Yes. His family lived the life of a traditional southern planter, or should I say plantation aristocracy. The family owned servants, They grew a variety of uh, crops ranging from corn, wheat, flax, buckwheat, and believe it or not, to tobacco. 
I always was convinced that tobacco was grown primarily in just Virginia and North Carolina. I did not know that, it, that the crop itself could be grown in Maryland. Well, Maryland's uh, rolling hills, which stretched from southern to central, were prime uh, tobacco cultivation ground. Well, it's safe to say even in, even in Maryland, tobacco is a king cash crop, just like it was in, for colonial Virginia for a number of years. Now, to give you an idea of the kind of home that Francis Scott Key grew up in, it was the finest in the area, and the courtyard was paved with brick imported from England. Now, people, is it safe to say that the vast majority of, of uh, Marylanders, or even let alone those in Virginia, is it safe to say that the vast majority of people have a courtyard that's paved with brick imported from England? No. Only a small percentage, I'd say between 1-2% to 2 of the population, and that population being the most well-to-do, being that planter aristocracy, ruling gentry, they are the ones that can afford that kind of luxury. Well, Francis Scott Key also goes by Frank. He inherited many traits from his mother. By the age of 10 being around 1789 and into the start of 1790, he is sent to a grammar school in Annapolis. And people uh, remember, what's the capital of Maryland? Annapolis. Now, he would spend a great deal of his time studying in the Capitol building. Who is he mentored by? None other than his uncle, Philip Barton Key who is the brother to Francis's father, John Ross Key. Well, as I had mentioned from a previous season, especially from the last one about um, signing their lives away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, as I had mentioned about how... Um, even in colonial days, there was dysfunction in family homes, and it had to do with loyalties. That is, whether one was um, on the side of the patriots or one or another family member was taking up sides with the loyalists, being the British. Well, it turns out that Francis's uncle, Philip Barton Key, was in fact a loyalist in the American Revolutionary War. He took, ar took up arms with the crown as an officer in the Maryland Loyalist Regiment. It would be very easy to say that uh, Francis's family wants nothing to do with this family member. Well, believe it or not, when he came, um, right before he came back to America, the state of Maryland did confiscate his property. And it should be interesting to point out that one of the qualifications for being president of the United States is that you must have lived in the United States for at least 14 years. Why is that um, one of the requirements? Well, during the American Revolution, there were many people who were loyal to the crown who went into exile into Canada. They either went back to their native land of England, if that's where they were from, or they went to Caribbean countries 
basically they went anywhere where they would have been uh, welcomed. Uh, but it's one thing to have a loyalty or an allegiance to something, but if you're not loyal to your homeland, then how is it safe to say that you should be qualified to hold the highest office in the land? So basically, being a resident of the United States for 14 years was a test, or should I say it was more of an oath of loyalty. Um, yes, you must be at least 35 years of age and must be a natural-born citizen, but to have lived in your country for at least 14 years straight, that should um, indicate whether or not you have um, true allegiance to your country. Well, um, Francis's uncle did come back to England, uh, to America in 1785, but before he did that, he, wa he did go to England to study law. And remember, folks, if you didn't um, sign up for an apprenticeship to study to become a lawyer in America, your other, only other option was to go to England to learn how to become a lawyer. So that's what uh, Philip Barton Key does. He, re he does return to Maryland in 1785, two years after the Treaty of Paris um, is signed, which officially ends the American Revolution, or the war itself. He was welcomed back by Francis's father. Now, I don't know of very many situations where family members were welcomed back um, into the family as a whole, even with um, different allegiances, but it is safe to say that there probably were uh, families who somehow were able to forgive other loved ones for um, differences in allegiances, or I should say for um, allegiance differences. So what does Philip Barton Key do when he comes back to Maryland? He becomes a leader in the Maryland Bar. Does anybody know what I'm getting at here? Kind of like the equivalent of the, um, of, you know, passing, say, the, in modern times, passing the state bar exam. So Philip is a member of the um, Maryland Bar, and at the same time, Francis gets accepted into St. John's College in 1794. Now remember, young Francis was born in 1779. He's going off to college at age 15. Of course, in today's time, one might say, well, he must have been a genius. Well, remember, people, there was no typical thing back then as K-12 through schooling. You know, Thomas Jefferson, for example, went to William & Mary at age 17 in 1760. John Adams went to Harvard, or Harvard, I should say, between 15 and 17. So it is very common in the 18th century for a young man to attend a college even before he is the, of age 18. Well, Philip really does look after his nephew, being Francis. He was responsible for seeing to it that his nephew knew everyone of importance in town. You know, this is important because it's, it's not so much who, what your status is in society, while yes, that is important, but in order to really make it, connections are essential. Connections are essential even in today's time. And yes, it does pay to be nice. 
yes, you should not burn bridges with people. But in order to become a lawyer, you do need to know everyone in town, not just everyone who's a lawyer, but you need to know everyone else who's in a different profession. Because remember, in, France, in young Francis Scott Key's time, especially in the 1790s, uh, here we are, we're still a very young republic in our infancy, but in order to um, establish any kind of um, reputation or image that's good, you've got to be able to uh, present yourself to those who are going to be looking up to you, not just in the short term, but long term. Well, Francis obviously did go about making an effort to know everyone of importance in town, but whom did he befriend which led to a long-lasting friendship while studying law? The answer is a gentleman by the name of Roger Brooke Taney, who came from a well-to-do family in Calvert County, being a county in Maryland. As a matter of fact, Calvert County was established by the Calverts from England, who basically uh, organized Maryland as a colony that would be a haven for Catholic uh, refugees seeking persecution uh, from Protestants. The Calverts, most notably, were Charles Calvert and Cecil Calvert. But, yes, Roger Taney, um, it turns out that he, he and Francis Scott Key knew each other so well, and yes, they had a long-lasting friendship that lasted in eternity, and it turns out that Roger Taney would go on to marry Francis's sister, Anne, so what do you know? Francis and Roger became brother, brother-in-laws. Now, not to rush ahead or anything, but I think this should be pointed out. Roger Taney is a successful lawyer. He's only two years older than Francis Scott Key. He was born in 1777. He, too, is a child of the American Revolution. Roger Taney... Uh, is a, becomes the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court in 1836. He is appointed by Andrew Jackson. He holds that post until 1864. And what's going on in 1864? The fourth year of the, of the American Civil War. Of course, I don't want to get this far ahead, but think about it, though, people. It's one thing to be appointed to something, but in the case for Roger Taney, he was Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court for almost 30 years. Think about what he has seen in that time. Who did he replace? None other than a famous Virginian named John Marshall, who had been, on the, who had been Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court from 1801 to 1835. Now, if you really want to talk about differences between those two, I could tell you very briefly this. John Marshall truly believed that the Constitution, um, or should I say not so much the Constitution, but the federal government had full authority over the states. In other words, his decisions tended to favor... Uh, the federal government's actions. 
But when Roger Taney becomes appointed to the court, he starts, um, what you call it, he, he does the opposite. He gives states greater power over the federal government. In other words, he's not saying, okay, the states can levy taxes against the government. And I mentioned that one because when John Marshall was Chief Justice, there was a famous case called McCulloch versus Maryland where the high court ruled that states did not have the power to levy taxes against the federal government. But when Roger Taney is Chief Justice, he is giving states greater powers in terms of making decisions that the federal government should not be involved in or should have less jurisdiction over. Well, uh, there is a town in Maryland known as Tawnytown, Maryland. I know this because I have I had a friend of mine from college who uh, was a very good friend of mine, uh, and sadly she passed away six years ago. But whenever I th hear about Tawnytown, she's the first person that comes to my mind. And it wasn't that long ago that I finally figured out for whom Tawnytown is named after. None other than Roger Tawney. Well, uh, let me ask you all this. Did young Francis, while studying law, get married? The answer is yes. He married a woman by the name of Mary Taylor Lloyd, a daughter of an old and wealthy Annapolis society family. Well, it does pay to... Um, marry well. Think about it. It's one thing to have connections in your line of work, but when you get married, you want to make sure you marry well if you can afford getting married well because all the things that come with it, land, amenities, or just other connections with people, all those things can help enhance your status. We take a look at George Washington. Who did he marry? Martha Dandridge Custis. He married her in 1759, and she was a widow, but she was also the wealthiest woman in Virginia. When her husband, Daniel Park Custis, died, she inherited all of the money and land that he owned. So when George marries Martha... All that property is turned right over to him, and his status is enhanced because of marrying Martha. So, it is very safe to say that in colonial times, even in the early 19th century, that when you marry, your goal is, is to hope that um, you are marrying well. Not just for short term, but long term. Well, when Francis Scott Key is able to start practicing law, where does he establish his first law practice? None other than in Frederick, Maryland, which is, which is about 20 miles southwest of Terra Rubra, where he grew up. At the time, it was a thriving city comprised of German immigrants. Who else sets up a law practice in Frederick as well? None other than his Francis's brother-in-law, Roger Taney. It seems like the two of them are inseparable, and why not? But then again, the two of them being brother-in-laws could not have been a better match. Well, 
I haven't been to Frederick, Maryland uh, before, but I do have friends of mine from college who are from there. As a matter of fact, I was out of town on vacation last week and driving up north and coming back home. Uh, when going into Maryland, uh, my wife and I did pass signs for Frederick. And in case any of you all want to know where Frederick um, is located in Maryland, I can tell you it's about 40 miles west of Baltimore. It's closer to uh, Winchester, Virginia. Now, um, by the time uh, Francis uh, reaches the age of 26, he moves to Georgetown to join his uncle Philip and establishes a successful law practice in Washington, D.C. And of course, while in D.C., Uncle Philip once again sets him up with an extra set of connections. You know, Georgetown is very interesting. I haven't been back there in years. Um, I do know that my mom, uh, her maiden name was Belle, and that was spelled that's spelled B-E-A-L-L. Her um, her uh, descendants from her family, being that of the Bell family, um, owned a great deal of property in Georgetown up until around the Civil War. So whenever I hear about Georgetown or learn something about it, uh, that's one of the first things that comes to my mind. As a matter of fact. I do know this. Many years ago when I uh, was in high school, we took a day trip up to D.C. and we uh, ventured part of that day into Georgetown. We saw the home um, where Jackie Kennedy lived for about a year after her husband was assassinated. It turns out that that was the same home that uh, a Bell family member had lived in many years earlier. Small world to say the least, but... Georgetown was a very uh, prominent um, land-holding uh, estate um, area for the, uh, for the Bell family. Well, um, how does Francis Scott Key go about becoming a successful lawyer, especially when, um, when opening up a practice in D.C.? Well, in 1807, Francis becomes involved in the Aaron Burr treason case. Now, most of us should know who Aaron Burr is. He was um, a former vice president to Thomas Jefferson. Aaron Burr was involved in an infamous duel. Who was the other counterpart that took place in that duel? None other than Thomas Jefferson's one-time nemesis, Alexander Hamilton. And for those of us who aren't sure what dueling is all about, dueling is a, a, an activity that um, dates back to the Middle Ages, or should I say of the uh, European uh, medieval times, most notably in the Middle Ages. But dueling was a way for um, men to resolve problems. Probably not the best thing to do, but this was also uh, a means of testing a man's uh, bravery or courage. If you showed up to challenge another man to a duel, that was one thing. If you did show up but took, your, uh, took the bullets out of your um, gun or should I say out of, out of the pistol or revolver, it meant that you were not ready to um, engage in the activity on that particular day. 
the worst thing that anybody could have done when it came to dueling was to have not shown up. If you didn't show up, you were frowned upon, you were seen as a wimp or a coward. So the bottom line is, if you weren't ready to fire, at least just show up, dump your bullets to the ground, and, and live for another day. I'm not sure what all the differences Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton had, but what I do know is that Aaron Burr shot him. Uh, the event uh, or the incident took place in, a, in, a, in New Jersey in a town known as Weehawken, New Jersey. I do know that Weehawken is located not far from the New Jersey-New York City line around what's known as present-day Wall Street or uh, close to Manhattan. So anyways, um, Francis Scott Key, like I said, is involved in the Aaron Burr treason case of 1807. He represents two men who aided former the former vice president in a plot to establish an independent republic and invade Mexico. As a result of this work, he, made, he went about making his first U.S. Supreme Court debut during the Burr trial, arguing before Chief Justice John Marshall. And it turns out that Francis Scott Key um, would go before the Supreme, United States Supreme Court on mo other multiple occasions. Now, the Key family did live in Georgetown, and Georgetown, believe it or not, was an old tobacco port city. It was up the river from D.C. The family lived on a street known as Bridge Street, known today as M Street. I don't get to Washington, D.C. much, so I honestly don't know where M Street is in Georgetown, but what I do know is that um, for anybody to live in Washington, D.C., or let alone Georgetown, you have to make a lot of money because uh, the average person would never be able to afford it in their lifetime. Now, in 1814, Francis Scott Key took over for Uncle Philip's law practice as Uncle Philip went on to Congress. Interesting enough, though, in 1814, and we'll mention more about this in another podcast session, 1814 is going to be a very dark year for the United States. But is it safe to say that Francis Scott Key's home is one that's... Um, bustling with activity. Yes. He, um, by 1814, he has at least six or seven children, and he's a very devoted father. He is looking after his children's well-being at all costs. He certainly wants what's best for them. But the key home is the center for Washington's social society. What does this comprise of? judges, preachers, to congressmen, to friends like former congressman John Randolph, and a fellow by the name of William Thornton, who was the designer of the U.S. Capitol building. Now, one thing I should point out, though, is that in 1814, or leading up to 1814, the Capitol building isn't what we think of today. We sometimes get led to believe that when Washington was built, or should I say Washington, D.C., got constructed, that many of the essential buildings we know of today were in existence at the start of the 19th century. The answer is no. They were only about, um, I could tell you this, there, there probably were at least 
uh, there were fewer than 100 buildings, let's put it this way, but there weren't anywhere close to 100 buildings. Uh, most people did not like spending time in Washington, D.C. Uh, many people preferred to be in uh, places like Georgetown, where many of the uh, social um, elite were living, uh, Alexandria, even Baltimore. So the bottom line is, is that um, Washington, D.C. is a wilderness. That's not bad, but just remember, people, it's a wilderness. It's not the same kind of uh, environment that we know of today. And lastly, uh, Francis Scott Key was a very devout Episcopalian. It turns out that I myself was once an Episcopalian, but when I met my wife, I got converted into being a Baptist. Hey, there's nothing wrong with it, but I haven't forgotten my Episcopalian roots, as I have uh, reminded my father, who is a very devoted Episcopalian. Well, people, uh, we have covered um, a lot of good essential information on Francis Scott Key's upbringing, but what I do find important is that um, his success didn't come overnight as a lawyer. He worked very hard to be a successful lawyer. Had it not been for his uncle, Philip, who's to say what Francis may have become? Sure, he might have found another profession that he probably would have enjoyed, the bigger question is, would he have been um, happy at it long term? Sure, we can all be in a line of work that we might enjoy at one time, but who's to say over time we might find something else that we would rather be doing? Well, you know, it does pay to have connections. It does pay to get to know everyone in your community, and especially for Francis Scott Key. Getting to know other um not just other lawyers, but people whom he could represent was essential because, after all, lawyers are pillars of their community. Sure, there may be some things that they may not always be liked about, but they do bring a lot of knowledge to their community. And when anyone's in need of something, they're going to have to turn to someone higher up who can... Um, help them get through a rough patch. Matter of fact, one time when my wife and I were in Williamsburg at um, Mr. Charlton's Coffee House, uh, the, the reenactor there said that um, the lawyer, or should I say the profession of being a lawyer, was far more popular than that of being a clergyman. Well, I could see where he was right, because think about it. Lawyers... How do I say it? Lawyers, while well, yes, lawyers can be involved in politics on a matter, L the ability for a lawyer to think isn't rigid, whereas for a minister, their thinking almost has to be rigid, especially in Virginia when you're in the Anglican Church or Church of England because, you know, it's one thing to preach, but if you are challenging, say, the Church of England you are not going to hear the end of it. But when you are a minister of the Anglican Church, you are going to do whatever it is to adhere to the strict principles that bind church and community together. But, at the, at, and this was uh, when we were learning about all this, this was um, leading up to um, what would have been the time that uh, the colonies were 
breaking away from England. So yes, being a lawyer would have been more popular than being a minister. But I would think it's safe to say that even in the early beginnings of the 19th century that being a minister isn't as um, sensitive as it would have been depending on where you were living before um, we had declared our independence from England. But the irony, though, to the War of 1812, which we're going to find out, is that we are fighting a second war for independence. Yes, we have our freedoms, as I mentioned last night. We have personal freedoms, like freedom of speech, pre uh, free press, freedom of, to assemble and petition, to be free from cruel and unusual punishments, to be free from uh, facing double jeopardy, that is, being tried twice for the same crime. We have the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures. We, ha we have all those freedoms, but we are going to find out why we are fighting the second war for independence on, a gr on, on greater details, that is, in another podcast session. But what I do know is that Francis Scott Key, by 1814, he is 35 years of age, and he has really made a name for himself. But it is also safe to say that even after the war had broken out with England, that is the War of 1812, he does become all the more concerned about the young country's um, security, especially in Washington, especially along the coast. He even went as far as to warning the Madison administration about um, the lack of adequate protection. It could be safe to say that Francis Scott Key might become a whistleblower like we know today. It might be safe to say that he could, be, could have been his own intelligence officer like that of the CIA. The bottom line is, is that, yes, while Francis Scott Key might be a lawyer, he's also very uh, vigilant about what is going on, not just in his community, but what's going on with the young republic. Well, that is all for tonight. Thank you for listening in, and I look forward to another upcoming podcast session here soon on Through the Perilous Fight. Take care.